This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you left wanting more at the end of each episode of this show? Are these short sessions getting you fired up to try new skills for yourself and share the journey with others who are working through the same challenges? Well, the good news is that this podcast is only the beginning. The real action and learning is happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord channel, where you can connect with the whole community to dive deeper into the topics on the show, explore solutions, and share your journey and blooper reel with an active group that can't wait to hear from you. You can get your questions answered and share knowledge and wisdom of your own on a safe platform that, unlike the social media giants, won't steal your personal data to advertise to you in creepy ways. Ditch Facebook and join us where the real skill builders are. Just find the link to the Discord chat on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back. So this week, I want to build on the panel discussion that I started previously in the panel episode with the group from the Outback Forum. In that conversation, we looked at various visions on what a regenerative food system could look like from representatives from Nestle, Agrana, and a conservation farmer. And today I want to bring another perspective into this idea of building healthy and resilient food systems from a friend of mine who has been working on this by connecting stakeholders throughout the entire food value chain in Finland. Patricia Vickland is the CEO of Invenira, a making ideas happen agency working with food and the bioeconomy, circularity, biodiversity, and thriving rural landscapes. She has been instrumental in creating a living laboratory in the Oland Islands in southwest Finland. She's also a hub leader in the Baltic region of the Savory Institute Network promoting holistic land management and a partner in GENS, a company working for upward spiraling farm life. Patricia and I met almost two years ago during my work in co-coordinating the first climate farming conference. She, along with three other fascinating colleagues of hers from Finland, attended the event and were my first window into the budding regenerative agriculture movement in that area of Europe, which I otherwise knew next to nothing about. Since then, I've been looking for an opportunity to follow up with her in order to see how their projects and collaborations develop. It turns out that Patricia and her team have been advancing some fascinating experiments in connecting members all through the production, processing, and retail sides of the food web in her area, And this is the main focus of our conversation in this session. We also cover the challenges and opportunities of working in a small microcosm like the Oland Islands where she works, and some of the advantages of dealing with food systems that haven't yet been overdeveloped and retain some of their traditional structures like local markets and diverse local production. Patricia also shares some insights into how we can all work in very tangible ways to become active and participating citizens in our food systems instead of just consumers. This session holds a lot of new insights and options for people who care to become more resilient on a community level in terms of food security in ways that have nothing to do with planting a veggie garden or becoming a farmer, many of which are relevant even to those of us who do produce food. So with that said, I'll hand things over now to Patricia Vickland. All right, Patricia, thank you so much for making time. It's great to reconnect with you. It's been far too long. How have you been? Thank you, Oliver. I've been very well. It's been a, a hectic hectic time of the year, but now it's sort of coming into calmer autumn. So that's great. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Well, tell me about some of the things that you've been working on, some of the projects that have uh, been hectic, but leading you into a calmer state now. <laughs> um, 
Well, I run in my company, Invenire, which is, um, yeah. I guess we are consultants, but I don't really like that term. So we just say that we are a making ideas happen agency because that is more where my focus is on just getting getting things to happen and getting action into new concepts and, and ideas. And, and within that, uh, we have bigger projects uh, that we run for a small company like ours. They feel like bigger projects and we run them mostly actually on an island. I'm based in Finland and, and we have an island, Åland Island, which is, um, which is the big island between Finland and Sweden. And I run most of my projects there to have a little bit of a living lab uh, because it's a society of 30,000 um, inhabitants. It's, uh, they have a little bit of autonomy in how they do decision-making, everything. So it's like a mini state, more or less. So it's, it's quite good, especially when we're working with bigger topics like changing the food system and things like that. Then it's actually an, an ideal place to work with a, a whole society, but in a very small scale. Uh, and on that island, I run some projects currently, and one is connected to to farmers working with sort of water protection and just uh, sort of water smart um, agriculture in general. And um, it's a few years that this this comp this uh, project is running, and we work quite intensely with farmers on on very practical issues, but then also bringing them together around for a water body or something like that and looking at more sort of complex issues. And then we also work on a higher level of, of trying to get the whole agricultural system to take into account these topics more. So that project has been keeping me busy because of course it's farming time, summertime. So there's a lot of soil sampling and, and working with soil health uh, and other things uh, during that time. And then the other project uh, that I'm currently quite excited about is one that is connected to uh, our natural pastures or semi-natural pastures as they are called and um, this comes from that that before when we had smaller farms scattered all over the country we also had smaller smaller um, animal units and and everyone had pastures around their farms and nowadays when the agricultural landscape looks different it's you know bigger farms bigger animal units, not as much grazing as before. And that has left our natural pastures a little bit without stewardship. Um, and um, currently the idea is that it's taken care of with subsidies and all that. So you are encouraged as a farm owner to, to take care of them by having animals there, but you are mostly doing it because of the subsidies. And that doesn't seem to be a very um, sustainable long-term uh, option, uh, at, at least not from our view. So that's why we're working with this project where we're looking at biodiversity, the 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 pastures as an ecosystem platform for many other things, and how can we design new uh, ideas and business uh, uh, concepts that could make sure that they are taken care of long-term, because. The natural pastures have been created by humans and the animals, and it's like they have co-evolved with with humans, and and they these landscapes have been created by by the human decisions, but also how the animals have moved and 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 grazed and all that. And now, uh, now we're looking at at new ways of of working with them and what kind of potential they have to be important 
for the whole society, but also for the farmers to be more, you know, find more profitable and more long-standing ways of, of continuing grazing, because that's one of my sort of big issues and, and topics that I like to talk about, and that is how to have animals out grazing um, so that our landscapes stay vital. Well, look, let's explore that in a minute, but to give me some context, because I will admit I do not know very much about the traditional land management practices in Finland or the Baltic states. Can you put me in situation here about some of the history and the current situation of land management and farming in that part of the world? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I'll probably focus on Finland because all countries are different and then certainly won't speak about all, all the different countries because they are in different um, stages. But but it, fin, Finland is, um, I mean, we used to have quite small farms, um, quite diverse farms. Um, and of course, because of our location and, and um, the fact that we have very cool summers, but we have normally quite a lot of, of rainfall. And, and so it's quite green and lush and we have a lot of forest. Almost 80% of our surface is forest and and we have a lot of lakes and all that. So we have a very sort of abundant nature when it comes to comes to to green. <laughs> uh, and that also has created that, that for, for animal um, production, it has always been quite optimal because we have a lot of grass. Uh, we have very intense summers with the, especially in the north when the sun keeps is up all the all year all summer round. And all that's so a very intense uh, summers, and that has been sort of optimal for 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 grasses. Um, so so meat production and milk production have always been very important. And then we have certain areas in the country, further south, for instance, that have been very good for grain or specialty crops or or something different. And, and from there, some orchards also in the south of of the country and all that. So so it's sort of been this sort of, we've had a basic agriculture of, of quite diverse farms, and then we have some specialization. But then now, like in most countries, when when units become bigger, farmers are fewer, um, they become uh, sort of centers where, where they have a lot of, of, of fields around them and they are less and less people working there and all that so i think we're in the same path as many other countries are that the machinery gets heavier and more advanced and all that so we're in we're in a state i think right now where farmers are few they are getting older uh, to be in farming you have to be very capital intense um, and you you have to really know what you're doing in order to have some kind of profitability and then like years like this year like been challenging for everyone but for us up here as well we started with a very very dry uh, summer which is not usual for us so hardly anything grew and then around July beginning of July it started raining and then it's been raining more or less the whole time and then everything started to grow again but also the the fields that should not have started regrowing um, so so it's been a bad year for most farmers here as well um, and then you are quite uh, vulnerable in, uh, having these kinds of, of farms. Um, so so the, uh, this is more or less what it is at the moment. But there's also maybe a little bit of this. Um, I don't think we're very far with the regenerative thinking and all that. But there's a little bit of that trend also going on where farmers are looking at 
different farm designs and models of how they could do things differently. Because I think, especially for their life quality, um, many farmers are way too stressed and way too pressured and, and they are not happy uh, being in the situation that they are. Um, and and I think that maybe there's a little bit of, of sort of new thoughts happening here and there of how you can farm differently. Mm. And as you said, the regenerative movement might be in its early stages in Finland. Where are people drawing inspiration from? Do they get a lot of ideas from outside of Finland or are they drawing from some of the traditional methods in sort of a mix of, of partly going back to, to those ways of farming and managing the land? I think mostly from outside. Um, YouTube is a, a very good starting point for many farmers, I guess. Um, but also trying to find these communities, like I've done myself as well, trying to find these different communities all around the world who are working with these topics to get inspiration and, and ideas. And I think for for many, it's it's the starting point is the mindset that you have to, you just have to apply a different mindset. And then when you do that, you open up uh, for many different ideas. And also something that I'm working a lot with, with this water project is also this this allowing culture of trial and error and we're really trying to put in that into that okay we don't know but let's try let's do a, a mini test here and small steps but let's do something and see what that brings and every time we do something we learn something and I think um, I think if you get into that mindset then suddenly the world is open for you there's so many different places to get inspired uh, and people you can get inspired by so it's um for me, it's more the, the everything is out there, but you have to have the mindset and the, the curiosity to start digging. Fair enough. And what about your own journey into farming and the work that you're doing now with the food supply system? How did that evolve? Uh, well, that probably comes from that. I'm actually not a farmer. Uh, so I live on a farm. Uh, it's a dairy farm and it's my two older sisters who are running the farm. But I've have, have had this connection always being half-time in city, half-time here out in the countryside through my whole uh, childhood uh, and youth. And then uh, always been very drawn back to the land. But then as uh, as number three, they're, they're, they are taking care of the farm. And I have always had this sort of, I'm educated in business and that's, that's been my path, innovation management and and other things. And, and my company, when I started that, just after I I finished um, my studies I went into just a little bit by accident one of my professors knew that I had this interest for for food and, and agriculture and she had happened to have a, a small project that was supposed to be like you know three months or something just as I, I was finishing and and, and um, it was about the food uh, food innovation a small project and then I said well I can do it three months no problem and I'm still on that same path now 20 years, well, more than that, 25 years later. Um, so, so sometimes it's these small, small requests that take you on a, a certain path. But then coming my path into regenerative was actually that um, with my company, then I've been working with a lot of different aspects of the food industry. And I've been with uh, processing companies and, and um diagnostics and technology and, and dietary supplements. We worked for many, many years and we're quite specialized, especially in marketing and communication and strategy around that and commercialization. 
And then at some point, I think about five, six years ago, we just started to realize that, okay, we are always doing this and pretty good work and everything, but it's like so small and there's so little impact on the world. And we were seeing how the whole food system really needed a change. Uh, so then we decided that to actually come away from that quite sort of nice and interesting and profitable path and start looking for other ways of working with more impact and having bigger projects and taking a few steps up from only working with particular companies to working with bigger topics. And that always takes some time. So it, it was a bit of a, a struggle to get into this kind of mode that we are working currently, but I'm very happy that we did that. Um, and now we have this approach of working with landscapes and within the landscapes, you have the different uh, stakeholders and and I get to work with farmers again. And I feel like it's it's something that I always wanted to do, uh, but always been some reason why you can't uh, do it, but now, now in, on that path. And the regenerative, it then came when we started to work with these kinds of things, then I got um, introduced to Savory Institution and I thought that was interesting with all the ideas of, uh, of EOV and land to market and how you can connect back to the consumer, which was one of the topics we were working on. And, and then um, from there it went and through that I learned to know um, climate farmers and, um, and many other um, networks around the world. And, and it's been an amazing journey. And also come to a point where I actually get to work with um, with other people uh, who are just as interested in region. Yeah, it's a really wonderful and dynamic space that we get to operate in at the moment with a lot of inspiration and a lot of vision. And within that vision, I would love to hear your version of not just what it would take to fix our current food system, but as you've articulated on the, the homepage of your website, to go and create an actually great food system that benefits so many different parties and looks at it holistically. How do you approach mm. that? I think um, I think it's to look at uh, the food system currently is a little bit like a sort of highway, motorway kind of. It's very industrial, very linear. It's very sort of, it's very efficient at what it's doing. But I think if we are going to take into account all these ecosystem processes and, and everything connected to that and sort of tie back to the planetary boundaries and everything. We have to rethink the, the food system and work to us more um, a web format, like a value web format in chain of value chain. And the web format by itself sort of starts to uh, bring um, aspects like it needs to be local. It needs to be circular. It needs to be adaptable to to the landscape it's in and also this idea that we have about these landscapes is that it's a landscape it's landscape of people and they care about their own landscape and you more we can circulate nutrients and water and and products and and values and everything within the landscape that is it's more like a human scale and and then people get more engaged and that's the other part of it that we have to we also program into this like we have a producer and a consumer. And our idea with, with what we've been working is that we have to start, there is no con, uh, consumer, it's a passive role, something that, that you are put into because it fits the system. But for us, it's more like we talk about food citizenship, uh, but it's about you taking a completely different, what is my role as an individual? You start thinking, what is my role uh, within the food system? What kind of 
actions can I take? What kind of roles can I take as an, you know, invest or farm myself or buy directly from, from someone nearby or, or be part of a network or whatever. But you have to be an active player in the system because then we start changing it from inside. And then whatever values you have, you, those values will become activated. And, and then you, when many people do this at the same time, then, then systems change quite quickly. So, so I think this activation of individuals and realizing as individual that you actually have a role to play is one of the key keys into getting into changing food systems. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I find the label of consumer to be very disempowering. And when you talk about all of the ways that people can participate, regardless of where they are within the value chain of the food system, there starts to awaken so a lot of possibilities, a lot of hope where it wasn't previously articulated. Can you give me some examples of some of the stakeholders, some of the people within the supply chain of food that you've worked with, how re-enlivenment of participation could look? Yeah, well, if I go back to this Orland Island, I think there's a lot of good examples, but they also somehow have a little bit of a uh, they're a little bit ahead because they never sort of left that rural um, society and it's the, also the benefit of a area being quite small and being a little bit protected and there's still those traces left of, of an intact uh, old-fashioned food system and I think that's one big benefit also so all those areas that still have that basis they are always a few steps ahead in this, but but on the Olin Island, you have this um, there's a lot of this trading. They have the the record, uh, which is the model of where producers sell to individuals directly, um, and they just do that over internet, Facebook. Normally, they use and all that, and they have a lot of trading going on directly. And many of them are small producers, but they might have honey, or they have some eggs, or they have something else. And because they are in this sort of um, condensed uh, society, it works very well. So that's one typical example where where pretty sort of basic producers can uh, sell their pro produce directly to, to a user. And I think that is all those met methods that you have to encourage that is great. And the other thing that they do currently right now is that they have, and they've had this for, I don't know, 20 years, at least they have this, one weekend in September when many of the farms open up for the public. So there are almost 50 farms or places to go during this weekend and everyone travels around and, and goes and visits the farm and see what's going on. There's lots of activity and, and things like that. And that sort of culture that you have this, that you open up and want this relationship building and, and this contact is, is unique as well. And I think that's one great way and then if you look from a producer perspective, the, the better you can, if there are any ways that you can package your product so that you can sell it, so it's not a commodity, but you can sell it as some kind of value creation, uh, then you are on a path of, of being part of this food system. Mm. Yeah, that's... I have personal reference to examples like that from living in Guatemala, living in Senegal, where, like you said, 
development hasn't come in such a strong way that they are still very far removed from many of the ideals that we try and get back to with things like bringing back farmers markets or other kind of small efforts that yeah. that move us towards a more direct relationship with the people who produce our food and I don't know if you have insights on this, but I've always been curious as to what sort of forces could cause someone to move away from that. I realize that the incomes and perhaps the um, amount of profit made from these transactions is not particularly high compared to the potential of doing this entirely as a cash crop basis. But it seems like the people in these uh, closer interactions and more traditional food systems are happier, are quite a bit more connected with the people and the community that they are producing for or that they are consuming from, and that these are not merely transactional relationships that actually go beyond and create deeper connections. Has this been your observation as well? Do you have an insight into how these start to break apart? Um, I, at least from, um, I, I think what I can see is maybe a little bit on a higher level with, with, with the food system and it's this, it actually com comes quite often down to the the animals and the way you process um, products out of the animals because I see on the on this particular island who then has this very diverse industry as well I'll just take this first and then I come back to that mm. but uh, but there's that that for me looking at this particular food system there are two critical um, sort of gatekeepers for keeping that system alive and that is uh, the abattoir and the dairy. Um, because you have to, for me, this sort of animal integration is so important in these, these uh, concepts. And up here for us, it's, it's, it's the, the cattle, the sheep. And if you have that function working so people can have animals, um, that, that is one important step on sort of the whole food system so that it works. Because if you lose, you can see regions where you lose the abattoir, you have a it sort of it dies off very quickly. And the same is a little bit with the dairy, because these are these that could be also fishery if you're close, close, closer to the coast, but these sort of high protein in a way in connection to land. I think that is uh, one key in the system. But then coming back to, to, to your question is then also that what for those to remain that what is then needed. And I think um, it's, it's also this that they see themselves as active individuals within the landscape and, and they have a connection to the, to the land. And if they lose that connection to the land, I think then it starts to break up quite quickly. And we can see a lot of, of this happening in our countries up here is that people live in the countryside, but they are not, uh, they don't have a rural lifestyle. They live some kind of urban lifestyle, but they are in the countryside. And that is, that is a, a sort of a sign of that disconnect with the land. But as long as people have this connect to the land and they understand their role in the landscape and that they have some influence on how the landscape evolves and how, how beautiful it is and, and all that and how uh, alive it is and all that, then as long as you have that understanding that you have a role, then it sort of sticks together. But if you lose that connection, then it starts to break up very quickly because then it's other forces that that start spurring the, the system in other directions. So 
I don't know if that's answering your your question, but that, that for me that is actually the the key, oh, the connection to the land. No, that's really in interesting. That that's a very unique commentary on very similar things that I've observed. So, in what you're trying to create as far as a beneficial food system, one that creates these livelihoods once again, are you trying to move back to the situation where the processing units, the abattoirs, the dairies, the fisheries are close and decentralized? Or are there other elements to this that are key to reviving rural livelihoods? I think within within the food system, it doesn't matter what kind of food system it is at the moment, but within those food systems, we, we see that there is room for these uh, local circular um, we call them agroecological symbiosis so it's the actors working together and they are circulating more or less nutrient or energy but it also can be produce or raw materials and 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 whatever it is but it's this idea of of being dependent on other actors and together you create some kind of circularity and we've been doing this on on bigger scales so we're doing this for instance uh we have a uh a, a, a potato factory quite a big one from from one of the big brands is there on the island and they have a biogas unit and then they are collaborating with some dairy farms and this is within the very conventional food linear food system model but within that you can create these sort of circularity loops so, so we have this collaboration where where the digester from the biogas goes to the farm and the farm gives the manure to the biogas and then it's sort of circulating like that and what we're looking for is always these whether it's energy or nutrients fertilizer or or raw materials for for someone uh, to make this circularity sort of hubs here and there and the more there are of them they somehow start pulling other circularity possibilities to them and i think that is one good way of sort of bringing in this and I think that that is the future we have to become much more decentralized um, because we are too dependent on very sort of narrow systems and and we could see with with the COVID for instance we could see how the supply chains were not in a good shape and I think we have to for resilience and 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 sort of regeneration we have to start creating these these uh, smaller units for sure yeah. I would definitely agree. And maybe that brings me back to what you were talking about in reviving rural lifestyles, that it's just mm -hmm. not a matter of bringing young people into the country to continue to work remotely and enjoy basically urban lifestyles on more land or in rural communities. Have you seen anything that is pushing a reconnection with the land beyond just moving to rural areas? I, I think it can... Um that connection that connection um is always on an individual level and you can see that happening with anyone you can see that happening with a conventional farmer or, or a, a youngster moving out to the countryside or or within anyone really and i think it is for me it's a very simple thing and it's actually just if you manage to open up sort of a little bit the language of the land which for me is understanding the ecosystem processes if you can get an individual to start reading the land and for me that is the ecosystem processes and if an individual starts to understand how the ecosystem processes work together and 
whatever that sort of dance is creating in terms of of an ecosystem or a beautiful landscape or whatever if if the individual starts understanding that and what role they can have in that in symbiosis with nature then things start to happen and i can see it for instance now when i'm working with with people with pastures and they might have been working with pastures for 30 years but when they start reading the land and they start to understand this there's like a whole new dimension opening up for them and i think that whether it's a producer or someone who is eating the food that they are produced or someone who's just living in the countryside the more you understand these these processes the the more um possibility we have also for for regeneration uh, on a larger scale because it cannot only be the individual farmers doing it it has to be the whole communities that are becoming more regenerative and have you seen that this is enough of an impulse for people or that it's happening maybe too slowly to scale the way we're thinking because i'm kind of referencing my own experience with this both personally and with with peers of mine where I mean, there's a reason why people have left farms and rural lives for cities traditionally, right? More economic yeah. possibilities, differences in lifestyle and usually an ease of lifestyle that is not to be overlooked, right? To make uh, the case that more people need to go into farming, that more people need to work in rural settings is, I mean, it's necessary to acknowledge the hardships and the reasons why mm. people left those to begin with. Do you feel that this reconnection, this uh, uh, the different elements that you just mentioned are enough to overcome those barriers? Uh, no, I think it, it's one element. Um, but the other is, of course, that, that you can have a decent livelihood being out there in the countryside. And I think then we are coming back to, to a lot of things, but for instance, that you are doing and many others, and that is this, this whole idea of how can you design farms that are in the right scale for the people and that you can actually make a living um so because um very few can jump directly now and many very few have even money to jump into a full production um conventional farm i mean how as a youngster how would you even have the capital that is needed to to start running a farm like that so i think for us to regenerate the whole rural um communities and all that we have to start making space for and this is also the economic part of me speaking but we really have to create good businesses out of being there in the countryside and creating value so that you can have a decent life because you can't go you can't go back there to be a peasant or a, just a, a farm worker for a big farm or something like that you have to find ways to create value out of 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 that unit that you have so that you can live from it because i think that is one big challenge also that i can see in this particular area that we're talking about that there's so many of them living in the countryside and having rural lifestyles but they can't live they can't have a full salary out of living there so they have to have an extra job and i think if we even could reverse that so that all these people that are currently having to go into the city and work half time or something like that if they could live full time of what they're doing there in the countryside that would be a huge difference and you talk about impact and, and all that that is the quickest way to to 
have that happening. Sure, and perhaps make it more attractive for people to come back and whether they're Absolutely. participating actively can also attract investment money as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're talking about rural lifestyles and producers themselves, but I know you also work at different levels of the food supply chain. Can you tell me about some of the partnerships and the conversations you're having at a producer and a processor level as well? That's a good question. I mean, since this is such a big portion of what dictates how food is grown and yeah. a lot of the complaints that I've heard from people who have made a lot of steps towards regenerating their landscape and transforming their businesses is that the the buyers the larger consumers yeah. that they are normally uh selling selling their goods to are not responding in paying more for the higher quality or I mean there's just not a, a value of this new way of producing and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you started to come into that with, you know, the projects that you're working with, yeah. or where those conversations are at. Yeah. And uh, in a way, I'm a little bit, I'm not all, I've worked so long in creating value, whether through communication or strategy or, or business models or whatever. And I, I, I'm not sure that, that, that there is that value to be created by doing something differently selling it uh, to to the following party in the value chain and thinking that you will get more be more paid for that because the um it's it's a tough it's a tough environment there and it's it's sort of there's very little loyalty and there's very little you're always in that very tough transactional um mode when you are in these setups so for me which is, I think, is also so important with what we're doing within GENS, the other organization that I'm connected to, is that we're also trying to look at, <clears throat> there's two ways. Either you get more money out of what you're producing and someone wants to pay more for it, or the other is that you change your production so that you have a lower cost. And I think it's a combination of both, but I would put much more focus also on where you can lower your costs, because currently... As part of this whole system, it's all built up for that, that you as a farmer need to supply the livelihood for quite many people around you who give you advice or who sell you input or, or provide other services and whatever. And the more you can take control of that part and be more self-sufficient in what you're doing there and getting your costs down through a lot of these very interesting regenerative methods that are out there, I think that is your biggest uh, sort of opportunity um, but then also then the other part is to try to change a little bit the, the role you have in the value chain but I said more the value web is that you take more roles for yourself also so that you maybe own a little bit of the distribution chain or or you need to own the relationship to the user whatever way you're going to do that because you can't be in that squeeze between suppliers input sellers and then you trying to get a better price from someone who is really pushing you and have a hundred other options of who they can buy from so it's taking that control over that position and changing that position i think that is the key otherwise you you can't you can't 
I don't believe in the model that we are now doing things differently and someone will pay us more for us doing that. Unfortunately, I think the world is too tough for that route. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that as so well. Changing changing your role um, in that and sort of breaking the boundaries of that current system, I think you don't have to do it brutally, yeah. but you have to actively reform that position. Well, so this sounds similar to an idea that I've heard from Mark Shepard in the past about mm -hmm. owning different parts of the supply chain from the producer side so that they get a little bit of a cut at each level of production all the way until sale. Now, mm. traditionally, the way to overcome that was just to be the direct seller. But now that there are so many different stages in transforming our foods and marketing and the business side of things, getting them to the final consumer, it's it's not as direct, or at least in most cases, it isn't. What does it look like? Is this a cooperative model? How can farmers have a little piece of the pie at each stage of value? I guess there are many different models for that. Um, and unfortunately, I think that there are more um, surfacing all these different models of how, how you can do it. Um, um, and I think that's also, there's not going to be a one uh, fix for, for everyone because it's, again, a little bit connected to your context and where you are and how many people you have around you and and where you can be participating and what your opportunities are and all that. So it's it's sort of um but I think as long as you as long as you get a um my my here on this farm, this dairy farm, so it's always been now it's my two sisters who own owns it. Before that it was my mother and my aunt and before that it was my great aunt. And she always said, like, because she she was building here the local dairy, and and she was really into this sort of developing the, the the milk industry from very small scale to a little bit bigger scale. But she always said, like, there's only one role you want to have, and that is to be the middleman. You know, she said, like, mm. in next life she wants to be the middleman because then you get then you get your shares of of what you're doing. And I think it's a little bit the same there that how can you as a as a producer think about how can you become a little bit the middleman in whatever it is either you have the direct relationship to the one who is using your products or you can try to find ways of become become in that food web that you become where you become important in these connections the more nodes you have around the better but i don't really want to say exactly what because i think that's that's also one challenge that we have that we see a model working somewhere and then we just want to copy that model and move it into what we are doing. But I think we have to start from our own landscape, the people, what we have and the structures we have and develop these innovative designs from there. Because if we, if we try to copy paste, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And how have you seen this being pioneered in Oland where you've been working? Um, well, there we see, apart from these record um, rings that I talked about, where you have a lot of producers, that's more or less direct sales. Um, but we also have we have one very interesting regenerative farmer who is in grains, and he has these more traditional um, ancient grains that he's focusing on. And and he, together with another farmer, they have they have an own mill together, and they actually 
pack the products and sell them to the supermarkets uh, or to people directly and all that. So they've taken a bigger share of, of the value chain and they own the relationship to to the consumer, and uh, which we shouldn't, shouldn't say, but the food citizen. Um, and so that's one example. Then we have some that have started um, uh, CSA. So they have this sort of very intense relationship with their users. And, and they even have, they have quite a fun thing where they, you can rent, an, it's an orchard, and you can rent an apple tree and you can come and pick your own apples from that apple tree. And if you don't want to pick it, they can pick it for you and they can also make juice because they're also taking a bigger part of, of the value. So they have their own um, juice pressing and, and all that. So And they knew they were a smaller player and they were in the current system and they saw that they they couldn't keep up with this becoming bigger and bigger and more efficient. So they decided how can we create more value? And now tourism is another thing that they connect very much to that. And tourism is, is also a very useful for having sort of visitors coming for different reasons, because that's also a value that you can sell. And I have a few interesting farms over there who are who are taking incredibly good care of their pastures and have done that for a very long time. And then can they can, for instance, sell uh, hunts, deer hunts, because that landscape is perfect for deer hunting, um, for instance. So you create these platforms of, of, from where you can create value in different ways but it's all quite small scale and and people to people and and you you can't you can't scale it into something huge but you can replicate it into something huge i think that's one important thing as well but rather than having one or two large producers and processors you have a bunch of decentralized in specific areas and they serve their local communities yeah and they're often connected to each other. So you have this 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 network between them also. So they're not separate from each sure. other. There's always something, some energy going in between these different hubs as well. I think that's important. Yeah, I mean, so, so much comes up in this. There's the criticisms that I know of this model and uh, talking about how the efficiency breaks down when it's decentralized like this. And that that's the main uh, advantage to the large centralized systems that we have, but that what you gain from doing this is resilience and a flexibility that the large players don't have. Is there a way to marry the advantages of both or is it always going to be a compromise as to whether or not we, we have this higher efficiency or the resilience and flexibility? I think it's always a balance. It's always a hybrid um, of some sort because it's. It, I don't think there is a, even is a, a sort of need for that to try to make it sort of very clear cut that this is that or this is this or because as long as you sort of have again this mindset of circularity and and being embedded in your landscape and uh, taking care of the ecosystem processes. Um, you can be a little bit bigger or you can be a little bit smaller. It's like like we have in nature also when you come to, to an ecosystem, you have all kinds of different players and they are playing together and there is some kind of dynamics between them. So so I think that there is there's always room for efficiency, but I don't see the the the, the problem is with some of the actors in the current industrial model who don't see 
anything else than an upward going uh, growth without, you know, where you just have to have more and more and more and more in order to come up to the next level and the next level. And and dairy up here is a good example. I mean, how we have increased the the, the amount of animals per farm. And when I ask a, a dairy farmer, well, what what is what is what is the limit? When are you going to stop? And how many thousands of cows are you going to stop? Because there's always okay, we have to get up to the next one, and next one, next one. But the profit profitability doesn't increase. So, so why do it? So then I think, again, sort of bending back to what I said earlier about circularity, but also looking at cost structure and how you can do things differently and design yourself out of the, the rat race, you know, and, and into, into God knows what. Uh, I think, if again, it doesn't matter of scale, really, if you just apply that mindset of how can I make this more circular and how can it be in balance with my ecosystem and my landscape because many of the farms have disconnected themselves from the land and i think that is a big problem sure and also the question of what are we trying to optimize for right is it just profitability or are there other meaningful things that we want from our lives and our businesses that cannot only be obtained through scale efficiency and profitability yeah, and, and the yield part, I think that we have to get away from that, that we always sort of try to get the maximal yield. As long as we get a good, solid yield from year to year without too much cost, we are on a much safer track than trying to be up there, always always sure. hitting a new record. Especially if that yield can be obtained in a way that increases the health and the value of the land that it's produced on in order to try and make the next year's yield and the next decade's yield much more secure or even uh, more likely or more resilient. I'm curious too, what other learnings, what other inspiration you have gained from this project, this little microcosm that you've been working on in Olin. And if you see similar things happening in the larger space, or if this is something that's unique to the confines of an island. Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, question that we are actually exploring because we know that on an island, and I've seen this in other areas as well, that on a, on your on an island you have this sort of somehow in the culture because you have the boundaries, and we've been talking about that as well. That okay, what happens when when you're trying to establish this this same idea somewhere um, in a region without so clear boundaries? Uh, but but I've still think which is a bit challenging for many areas nowadays i think it's actually the closeness of people that how can can one farmer still go to the other farmer for a coffee and he can he or she can do that within sort of 15 minutes or does does that farmer have to drive two hours to go and have a coffee with the other farmer and if you have that approximate that you have that closeness that, that you can do that there is a natural system of how these things just keep evolving. And, and the more, and that's quite typical for people on, on an island also is that they have very sort of good understanding of what the neighbor is doing for, for many different reasons. But they always have this sort of awareness of what's going on. And I think we we come, especially here where I live, which is not on the island, we there's less and less farms around us and it, it, it becomes quite, quite sort of 
distance and you don't find these natural collaborations anymore and and it's all sort of also starting to be quite transactional when it used to be very relationship built everything so i think um yeah think think about that but how many minutes does it take you to drive to another farmer to get be able to sit down in a coffee table with them mm. a zoom doesn't help it has <laughs> to be a, a real coffee table <laughs> yeah, for sure <laughs> I want to go back to one thing that you mentioned before about reimagining the relationships and getting rid of the concept of consumerism and transforming mm-hmm. it into food citizenship. Can you go into what that means to you and you know how people can take active part in the food supply systems they're part of? Yeah. I mean, it, it can be anything, really, uh, as long as you, as I said, as you are sort of active. Uh, and you decided you have an active role because I think one of the biggest challenges is that people think that doesn't matter doesn't matter what I buy in the shop or it doesn't matter how I produce my food or anything or sort of and have that com- have no knowledge about that product or who produced it or how it was produced and all that so I think that is the main thing that you start finding out so the just the smallest level of becoming a food citizen is that you actually start finding out about your food um, and what we what we actually did, and, and unfortunately it isn't Swedish, so it doesn't work very well for the for the international audience. But we actually had in a previous project where we were exploring the food citizenship, we had um, a journalist, a, a, a freelancer that we used for I think it was almost one year. He was like a guinea pig for food citizenship, and we had this concept going on where he, my colleague, had developed for him. Um, like a, a program a training program to become a food citizen and then he got like every second week he got a new task and he never knew what the new task would be but then he went out and explored and then he did it and then he reported back of what he had learned and that was quite a fun exercise and if you look at some of the exercises that he did it was i think he actually started with with um, recycling and nutrients and what happened when he used something in the kitchen where he put it and how much he produced of, of of waste and all that and then he figured out also where it went and how it was processed later on and so on so he, i think he started with that but then he looked at his his food where does it come from where does his protein come from so he looked at fish production he looked at dairy production he looked at at um, at uh, meat uh he was vegan for two weeks. Uh, he produced his own food during the summer. Um, and then he also had later on, which he, all these things that was about him, himself, uh, he was very good at. But then he, and when, when he advanced in the program, he came to a point also where he had the job of trying to connect with other and try to, so in a way, spread the thinking to others. Um, and activate them somehow to become food citizens as well. And that was actually the most challenging for him because that that becomes then, um, and I think that is one of the keys also for how we can get this to work is that I think it's fairly easy, which is a good thing. It's fairly easy for us to decide about our own decisions and how we become food citizens. But then when it comes to that next step to really get that impact is that how you interact with other people and and that is then then we come into this that can you 
activate uh, other uh, users around you or can you become investor into something or can you uh, get a share in a CSA or or whatever you can do to to facilitate uh, that process and and that for him was the challenging part but he he did well in the end and he was an incredible guy just throwing himself completely into this task of becoming a food citizen so we have one one fully accomplished with diploma and everything food citizen on the Orland Island. <laughs> That's wonderful. Man, I would really love to see an outline of some of these steps because it sounds yeah. like at the beginning, it all revolves around learning about the cycles that you're a part of and where exactly. waste goes, where things come from originally and building an awareness as to your participation within that. And then it opens up opportunities to become more active and bring other people along. Yeah, and you become so much more knowledgeable because then you talk to so many people and you sure. can, and you learn and you do things yourself and all that. And yeah. Oh, I would love yeah. to see a list of these activities. I, I want to take some <laughs> we, of these we... on myself as I'm on my own <laughs> journey of learning more about the food shed in which I'm a part of and the yeah. opportunities to participate uh, increasingly as a producer as well. Exactly. So you're yeah. really taking on many roles of being a food citizen at the moment. Hopefully. Yeah. You, should have, you should have your own passport soon, I think. Okay, I'll, I'll wait for that in the mail. <laughs> so, I mean, I often get asked the question about, you know, how one can have a beneficial impact or become more sustainable in their consumption. And... I think one of the perceptions, partly from all of the interest on social media and other places about people growing their own gardens is that, oh, well, for me to be able to say that I am consuming more sustainably, I need to be producing my own food. Mm. In the past, my answer to that is, well, it depends on if you're passionate about it. I would not want you to get into something that you end up resenting or doing begrudgingly just because of this abstract idea of sustainability. What other options are there beyond producing your own food? How can you support those who are producing yours and I guess work towards this concept of sustainability or regeneration without necessarily having to start a garden? Let's say it's not even mm. feasible for you in a city or somewhere else. I, I would say just buy the food from people you know that are doing the, the things that you value and keep buying from them because I think it's also this uh, long-term uh, sustaining long-term relationship. So if you have a, a great beef farm close by and you know that they are doing good grazing and they are have high animal uh, welfare and, and all that, keep buying food from them and do it on a regular basis because that is what they need in order to, to sustain what they are doing. So, I mean, it, it's recognizing those that you want to buy from and that you get really nourishing food because it becomes also nourishing because you know, especially if it's in your landscape and you see what impact that production also have on your landscape, uh, whether it's orchards or whether it's grain or whether it's um, meat production or whatever, that you feel that I'm part of this. So by doing this, I'm also part of this. I'm upkeeping this beautiful landscape by buying this meat for instance so i mean it's it's those stay stay loyal to the the ones that are doing the job because if you don't buy from them they will disappear it's, it's pretty easy really yeah so i think that is that is that is the main thing and and not and, and especially that long term 
thinking that you don't abandon them after two years or something like that. Right, right. If, because sometimes you like them and then you still don't buy it because you are so it's so convenient to go to the supermarket. That is the the convenience part is is your biggest enemy quite often, unfortunately. And it shouldn't be like that. We need to create more convenient ways of buying the right food as well. Yeah, sort of like the reco rings that you talk about, um, helping to make this more accessible, closer to where people are actually purchasing things, mm. and. Do you see any other opportunities there? I mean, the concept of reco rings has been tried in a few other places. Richard Perkins has really championed them in Sweden. Um, mm. It doesn't seem to have spread quite across Europe yet. There have been some barriers and people trying different ideas. I know there have been a couple of ideas similar to those that have been tried here in Catalonia, but I haven't mm. seen them really take off. Is it really a matter of creating a relationship and a dialogue with the producers that you want to buy from to see about how you can overcome the barriers or maybe increase the ease of access to their products? Well, I think it's also a little bit coming back to that. It's a little bit the context that I think the recordings up here has been successful because we we have sort of we are losing a little bit the marketplaces and far, we haven't had proper farmers markets for, for a long time and all that. But if you are in an area where there are other ways, then then this might not take off. So it's again that what I was saying before that design something that fits into your landscape. Because when you try and record, it's a good example. You take it from one place where it has worked, and you try to move it, and it might contextually not be right. Um, so so that that's one thing. That what is what is really needed in that landscape that you are. That is the main question. Um, and. I think one important thing is also to get producers and users to come together and discuss what is needed, because it might be sometimes very small things that are lacking, that they just don't know about each other, or or there is some logistical problem, or or something. so. Sometimes I feel like we're trying to make quite big challenges out of things that might be quite simple to actually solve, but you need communication. So yes, in, in that way, the relationship building, but you need communication so that you can explore these ideas and, and be open to to think together what we could do. And that is not natural for for many people right now because we are in these passive roles. Um, yeah. But but if we can encourage those dialogues between producers and users, I think that's, that's one thing that all of us can do in different um, levels. Well said. And... To continue with this opening of dialogue, how can our listeners reach out to you, maybe start a dialogue with you personally or connect with some of the organizations and the company that is moving these conversations forward? You can find us at invenire.fi or gems.eu. That would be the easiest way to, to find my contact details. And if you want to explore Food Citizen or something, we'll be happy to, to get you going. Fantastic. Well, Patricia, it was an absolute joy to reconnect with you after all these years since I saw you at the conference. Let's hope that it doesn't take so long to get in touch, hopefully in person sometime. I would love to go up to Finland. I've never been to that area. <laughs> you can come and visit this, this island and see what's happening there. Oh, that'd be amazing. Great. Yeah. Right, well, let's talk Wonderful. about that soon. <laughs> Thanks again for making time to be in touch. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Patricia. You can find links to her company and our other collaborators on the show notes on our website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, 
design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.